tree. The tree didn't matter anyway. It's all about the boy and the apple. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of dysfunction there. (laughs) We looked at this and said, what a beautiful story of generosity. We were the ones who decided that. It was never Shel Silverstein. Now she's just a stump. And alone. Hello and welcome to the Untitled Gen X Podcast. A podcast sometimes hosted by two childhood best friends, always dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Kate, a writer and a midwife. And I'm Lori, a writer and a pop culture lover. If you've ever pondered the sometimes fuzzy line between love versus sacrifice, or beloved children's classic versus entitled child's manifesto, then this episode is for you. Today, we're turning the pages of Shel Silverstein's classic, The Giving Tree. We'll be exploring the themes we thought we loved while unraveling the enigma of the Renaissance man himself. Kate, The Giving Tree, what do you think about it? I have big feelings about this book. (laughs) (laughs) So I loved this book as a child. Oh my God, me too. When I was young, I don't know if you recall, but we had two large trees in our front yard. I do. We used to play tetherball on them. I don't think we played tetherball on them, but adjacent to them. Okay, okay. And no, you know what? It wasn't tetherball. It was Zim Zam. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I remember the name of that. (laughs) Like, I have not thought that word since I was 10 years old. (laughs) Thank you, the giving tree. Thank you. Anyway, so we had these two big trees in our front yard. I always thought of that tree as like the giving tree tree. And I liked to sit there with the green book under the giving tree tree and read it. And it made me so happy. It seemed so lovely. I'm not certain that this book is not responsible for some codependent behaviors I may still possess to this day. (laughs) I think that's really fair. I think when we think back on this book, It was such a huge part of everyone's childhood, even for kids like me who didn't like to read. This is an actual book book. It's lively. It's green. The cover is so inviting. This tree is dropping an apple to the boy with the outstretched hands. It has like very few words on each page. It's It's like it's more like a little graphic novel, right? You get to see a picture on every page. And I don't know, it made me feel like reading without actually having to read. And I thought I loved the messaging of this book. It just feels so familiar. When I see the illustrations, I get a warm fuzzy. When I read the words, I feel really, really sad. And that's as an adult. And we will get into the deeper themes of this. But wow, what a revisit. Yeah. Uh, And to be fair, I can't remember where this like came into my awareness sometime in the last few years. And I had revisited it and I was like, wait, what? (laughs) And also, I would be so curious to know because someone uh, brought up the fact that like, all of these like, uh, virtual assistants that we have default to a female voice, like Alexa and Siri. Now you can change, I don't know about Alexa, you can change Siri to have a male sounding voice. But what does it say about us culturally that we're like, accustomed to like demanding things of women and not even saying like, thank you or please, right? And how does that teach children 
you know, it's just a subtle reinforcing of the fact that like we expect women to deliver these things on demand. And so I'm curious because the tree is very clearly feminine and the boy is very clearly masculine. I mean, the tree is absolutely gendered. Like they call the tree a she. Right. So like, how is that reinforcing these sort of gender stereotypes Uh without anyone really realizing it? But here, this tree is giving so much and then the boy is taking so much. And like, I would be curious to know how men who were boys reading this book view it and if they, you know, are disturbed in the same way that we are as adults. I probably should have talked to my older son about this. So I'm holding my copy of The Giving Tree. This is mine from when I was a kid. In the front cover, I've written my name in my scratchy childhood writing. And then under it, I wrote my, my older son's name. And so this was in his bookshelf. And it's fun to have these little sort of relics from my childhood. But again, I wonder what he would think about this. He's 20 years old now. I used to read this to him. And I think even when I was reading it to him when he was a small child, he liked the pictures and it was an easy bedtime read. And when you're a parent, you're like, all I want in this world is an easy bedtime read. You're like, pick the short book, pick the short short, (laughs) easy book. He liked it. It was easy to find in a bookshelf. I could tell him, go get your green book. And even though I was an exhausted parent giving, giving, giving to the small boy, It didn't hit me the way it hits me now. And I think I was more like, just get through the book so he'll fall asleep rather than actually thinking about the deeper messaging. So it's an interesting book. Shel Silverstein, a really interesting dude. Like, we don't actually know that much about him. All that we know, and it's it's a joke in like the Diary of a Wimpy Kid film where it's like, they look at the the picture of Shel Silverstein on the back of one of his books, like where the sidewalk ends or whatever. And he looks scary. And they're like afraid of the picture on the back of the book because he was so, he was sort of a beatnik. He was sort of this very colorful, mysterious character. And you didn't really know, like, who was this man? Right. Right. So my mom was a huge believer in libraries. And so I never actually, I owned The Giving Tree, but I never actually owned Where the Sidewalk Ends or Light in the Attic. attic. Mm -hmm. And so at my school library, those were like, I think you had to be on a wait list for either the entire academic year or possibly, you know, like academic year and a half in order to get it. So it was very exciting when your name came up. And I think I probably checked them out like twice in the time that I went to school there. Oh, Kate, I had both. You should have just borrowed them. Oh, you I were a house have. away. I know. That's so funny. But I can remember like you were the envy of everyone that week you when you got it. those books. And I can remember getting the book and like my one of my favorite ones was... um what was her name? Something Sylvia Cynthia Stout. Would Sarah not take Stout. the garbage Would out? not take the garbage okay. out. I have to tell you, in the sixth grade, I went and I recited that poem in this like contest for a group of Christian schools, whatever. And I recited it with so much um, gusto and like... <laughs> Like there was like real performance behind it. Like I acted it out and I won first place reciting that that poem. And it was my favorite. The irony of like you reciting that poem, because if you all don't know, like I would have without 
a shred of concern eating like a spaghetti dinner off of the floor at Lori's house growing up <laughs> because her house was so clean. So the idea of garbage piling up in her house, like the irony. <laughs> no, you're right. And I had a lot of chores. I was a person who had a lot of chores. Our house was very clean. So yes, the irony, the irony that was lost on me until this very moment. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's what I'm here yes. for. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I loved that poem. And I can remember like being so excited to have the books. And then like flipping it over to the back cover. And like, I did not in my brain understand that the person in the picture was the person who wrote the book. Because oh, really? okay. I just couldn't put together that this like, bald bearded man on the back cover mm -hmm. was writing these like, whimsical poems. Right, like you expect <laughs> to see like a Mr. Rogers on the back page. Right, or like, yeah, I don't even know what I expected. But like, just he looked very serious. And like, he was serious, intimidating. <laughs> and I was like, I don't and then I remember, although I do recall he had a nice sweater on like a chunky sweater. Am I wrong? I'm I think on one of them, he did. There was another one yeah. where he's like, his body sort of curled up weird. I think he's holding a guitar. Yeah. And so it did, like, I can remember like, at a much later date being like, that's why that gentleman's picture was on the back <laughs> of the book. <laughs> I was a smart child, but like sometimes simple concepts I escaped mean, me. Yeah, he so. did. He looked serious, not inviting in those pictures. And so it's actually kind of rare to see a picture of him. I, I'm looking right now, like there's a few of the, him smiling and he looks so much softer when he's smiling. Yeah. But that bald head and that intense beard, like it's a look. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for sure. And like if it was like the 60s or the 70s, I mean, it makes sense, but I was a kid of the 80s and I <laughs> no, I was just like, why is this interesting looking man on the back of this book? Oh, well, I'm going to go back to my poems. <laughs> His history is really wild. He was born on September 25th, 1930 in Chicago, Illinois. So like I said, we don't know a lot about him, but he told Publishers Weekly, quote, when I was a kid, 12 to 14, I'd much rather have been a good baseball player or a hit with the girls, but I couldn't play ball. I couldn't dance. Luckily, the girls didn't want me. Not much I could do about that. So I started to draw and write. I was also lucky that I didn't have anybody to copy, be impressed by. I had developed my own style. I think that's really interesting that he felt like he didn't have anyone to copy. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it at that time, what were the children's books like? I mean, I don't know. I think it was all probably like very traditional. Right. It was like those little mm -hmm. um, golden little book golden book kind of things. Yeah. Or like Dick and Jane. I mean, I know Dick and Jane was like earlier than that. But yeah, so he really was innovative in what he was doing. 100%. And also like his characters, much like the boy in this book, <laughs> were not perfect. <laughs> No, I'm so glad you said that. Each one of these characters was so unique, so very human. It's a caricaturized version of people you know in your life. Right. And yes. so there were deeper layers to all of these characters. Yeah. I have not read a Shel Silverstein poem aside from the Giving Tree book in years, but I have very fond memories. And I think that they were important to 
growing up and I don't know, understanding your place in the world and understanding that I think what I really appreciated is like the kids in his poems were very real and they were an important part of the story. Whereas I think sometimes when you're a kid, you feel not so important. You know, you feel Mm -hmm. like one day you'll be important, but you're not important yet. And so I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that too. And I enjoyed the imagination of all of it. Like there were just crazy twists and turns to all of his work that maybe we weren't expecting or it was going along a certain way. And then all of a sudden it turns like sharp left and you're like, whoa, there was just so much imagination and color behind what was always black and white. Yeah. Like you could see it and it was vivid and it was vibrant, but yet what you're looking at on a page is just black and white. I'm holding up the book. You can't really see it. (laughs) It goes in and out. Okay. So after high school, Shel Silverstein attended the University of Illinois. He was expelled. (laughs) He then enrolled in the English program at Chicago's Roosevelt University. And while he was there, he like wrote some songs, like famous, famous songs. He wrote, put another log on the fire. And perhaps most notably, Johnny Cash's biggest hit, A Boy Named Sue. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, when you think about that song, absolutely sounds like a Shel Silverstein poem. Mm Mm-hmm. So interesting. Yeah, it's wild. So he ended up being drafted. He was drafted into the army. He ended up stationed in Japan and Korea. While he was there, he continued cartooning. And his works were published in Pacific Stars and Stripes newspaper. And he said of that time in his life, quote, for a guy of my age with my limited experience to suddenly have to turn out cartoons on a day-to-day deadline, the job was enormous. So he was like working his craft really, really hard for a long time. And then in 1955, his entire cartoon series was published into a book. I mean, they were that good. Wow. He later said of his time in college, at least, he said it was a total waste. He would have rather spent his time traveling around the world meeting people. Which, I mean, I guess if you're a poet and a cartoonist, I can see. And a songwriter and musician. Right, that, like and, those experiences mm-hmm. would would contribute to that. Well, in 1957, Silverstein was hired as a cartoonist for Playboy. Really? Mm-hmm. There's an unexpected plot twist. <laughs> right, right. Playboy sent him all over the world because he had a travel diary series with Playboy uh, where he would like sketch his observations and all of his drawings would be published monthly in a series called Shell Silverstein Visits. Interesting. Yeah. I do think that having a job where you get to travel like at literally as your job, like not like, oh, I'm going here for this meeting, but like my job is to travel uh-huh. and experience the place I'm visiting. That's a pretty sweet job. Like a travel influencer. <laughs> right, right. He was the, the OG, <laughs> the OG. influencer. He was. He was cranking out content. I mean, yeah. right. So Silverstein was pretty tight with Hef and um, he spent a lot, a lot of time at the Playboy Mansion. Uh, He liked the ladies, Katie. I mean, looking at his pictures now as an adult woman, like I could see that he probably had a lot of like magnetism that drew people to him and perhaps particularly women. 
as a child, I was just, that was. Oh yeah. No, as a child, he seems scary, but I look at him now and I'm like, okay, he has a look. He's clearly super intellectual, so talented. I'm sure had I been the appropriate age and like interacted with him at a party or something, I would have been like, yes. (laughs) Oh my God. I cannot believe we're talking about being attracted to Shel Silverstein. I know. This is wrong on every level. Oh, sorry. Talk about a sharp left turn. I'm trying to imagine now a children's author who, prior to writing and publishing their children's books, wrote for Playboy or some other type mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. I I don't think it would fly. I think people. Well, you know, would he never like, really wanted to be a children's author, so he never really saw himself as that. I don't think that him doing one thing really negates the other, because after all, people do. Subscribe to Playboy for the articles. I mean, Shel Silverstein visits, sold. No other reason to subscribe to Mm -hmm. it other than that. The rest is filler. But like, I just think that if that were to come to light in today's day and age with a newer author, I think people would be like, absolutely not. Scandalous. (laughs) So... So, okay, he spent a lot of time at the mansion. It's been written that he has slept with a lot of women. But he said, quote, by the time I got to where I was attracting girls, I was already into work and it was more important to me. Not that I wouldn't rather make love, but the work had become a habit. So he was a real workhorse. Like he worked all the time. I get the impression based on the things that I've read that he was just one of those guys whose brain was like on overdrive. Mm-hmm. His thoughts probably moved way faster than he could get them down on paper. But when it came to the origin story of our questionable, the giving tree, the seeds of the giving tree, <laughs> there's a better segue. Um, he wrote it, but he was trying to shop it around to publishers and it was just getting rejected like all over the place. Simon and Schuster rejected it because it was, quote, too sad for children and, quote, too simple for adults. But Silverstein is famous for saying that he is not a fan of happy endings. So this book clearly does not have a happy ending. So many of his poems are not tied up in a giant bow that we like to see in our children's stories. But when you think back on the poetry that you loved, you'd finish the poem and just be sort of like, huh. Or it ends on a note that's a little bit sour. Right. And like, maybe that's important in children's books because one, it just gives them a different perspective, but also for kids whose lives aren't neat and tidy and perfect and tied up with a bow, like maybe it gives them an opportunity to like see something that resonates more with their experiences and not feel so alone. Yeah, I agree with that. In fact, Shel Silverstein said in a 1978 interview, quote, the child asks, why don't I have this happiness thing you're telling me about? And it comes to think when his joy stops that he has failed, that it won't come back. So of course, he's talking about the giving tree specifically, but like the question mark of the child, why aren't I happy? What did I do wrong to make it so I am not happy? Yeah, it's to say it doesn't always work like that. In fact, it rarely does. Right. And yet we have this sort of like, 
agreed upon myth in our culture that like, we should all be happy all the time. And if you're not happy, you're not doing something right. And so figure out what you're not doing right so that you can be happy. Mm-hmm. Instead of accepting that, like anything, like happiness is a state that's going to come and then it's going to go and then it's going to come back again another time. And just learning to be okay with that and to trust that like, things will flow and like, but we're very bad at that in our culture, right? Yeah. And it, it, oh, like, I feel like this could go really deep. Like, if you just think about like, if we could get out of that mindset, how much better would people start to feel? Um, Because they don't feel the pressure to be happy, which ironically would make them potentially happier. Planting some deep seeds, Kate. I know. Who knew the giving tree was going to do this? It gives so much. Uh, I feel bad asking this question. Is Shel Silverstein still alive? No, he is not. Okay. Well, may he rest in peace. Yes. But I feel like he would be proud that his work has generated such a deep conversation. Absolutely. Shel Silverstein was really frustrated by this. He's like, you know, this is a good little story. What's going on? And so he had a lot of creative friends. And one of his friends really, really urged him to reach out to this editor-in-chief, Ursula Nordstrom. She was in charge of Children's Lit at Harper and Row, which today is Harper Collins. And this woman, Ursula Nordstrom, we have her to thank for Goodnight Moon, Harriet the Spy, Stuart Little, Charlotte's Web, Harold and the Purple Crayon, <laughs> a beloved classic, and Where the Wild Things Are. The city knew her stuff. <laughs> she did. She was clearly a visionary. Like, she she could see it. And so she took a chance on The Giving Tree and published a small run of 7,000 copies. Imagine if you had that first run, if you had a copy right? of that book. Well, in October 1964. But she did ask Silverstein, hey, can you modify your, like, quote, she called it scratchy sketch style that you used in Playboy to something a little bit sweeter. So it's funny when I look back on the giving tree, the illustrations, they're pretty sweet. Like until we get to the the point where the boy becomes an old man, he looks a little bit scary and skeletal, but it is kind of a sweet sketch style, but not all of the sketches in his children's poetry books that followed were very attractive to look at. Some of them were really, really ugly. And I remember being attracted to those really ugly images. It kind of scared me, but I liked them. Yeah, I think maybe what he got about kids, and maybe he didn't purposefully like do this, but is that when everything is pretty and pink and a pony, like seeing something that's not is very intriguing and oh, very yeah. like, oh, I'm cool enough to like be able to look at, you know what I mean? Like I'm mature I don't have to, enough. Right. I'm not afraid of this, even if it kind of scares me a little. Right. I can interact with this thing that hasn't been like polished up, you know, to be kid friendly. And maybe I don't, maybe that's not a feeling that kids have anymore because they're exposed to so much. But I feel like when we were kids, there was still this idea that like, you had to be careful what children were exposed to because, you know. Kate, this was 1964. You know, the books that we loved, the children's poetry books were in the seventies, you know, but When you talk about like the grotesque for children, I immediately think of like garbage pail kids, like how attracted were we to those disgusting images? We were like, these are gross. I don't want to look at them, but where can I find more? (laughs) 
And can I collect them? <laughs> I like missed the whole garbage pail kid. Phenomenon. I told you we need to do an episode on garbage pail kids. You're so uninspired to do that, but I think the audience would be into it. The only memory I have of garbage pail kids is that the little sister in some kind of wonderful is all into them. Uh, like, yeah, she is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm like Candace, um, the irony of Candace Cameron Bure. There's a lot to unpack. Let's there. not talk about her. Okay, right now. <laughs> back to the Giving Tree. According to the New Yorker, sales of the Giving Tree doubled every year in the decade following its publication. So it's been out for 10 billion years, and um, it sold an S ton of copies. Now. I found the best article. Um, It was in the New York Times. It was titled, We Need to Talk About the Giving Tree. Yes, we do, friends. Yes, we do. (laughs) We really do. And so for anyone that has not read the Giving Tree, I feel like you would be living under a rock. But okay, maybe you didn't read it. Or maybe it's been years since you've revisited this. And in your mind, you're like, it was a happy little story. I remember that story. I loved it. Loved it. Green book. Loved it. Um, writers Adam Grant and Allison Sweet Grant, they summarized the book as this. So this is just a quick little summary. I'd rather quote them than Shel Silverstein. So they said, it's about a boy who loves a tree. As he grows up, he visits her repeatedly. He takes her apples and sells them for personal profit, removes her branches so he can build a house, and chops down her trunk so he can build a boat and sail away. In the end, the tree has nothing left to give and is reduced to a stump. That's an interesting perspective. First of all, it starts out and it says, it's about a boy who loves a tree. But is it? Or is it about a tree who loves a boy? Oh, good point. And I think that the boy loves the tree. Oh, I, I feel a little like I want to cry. <laughs> I'm a little we welcome that. Today. Uh, <laughs> um, I think in the beginning, the boy does really genuinely, deeply love the tree. But I don't know. And they also kind of leave out the fact they, I mean, they're like, you know, he takes her apples, he sells them for profit. She does offer these things. Like he yeah, comes okay. and, and tells her he has a problem and she offers these because she's the tree who loves a boy. The boy does love the tree, at least in the beginning, because mm-hmm. like it's a mutual relationship. He seems lonely and he finds companionship in this tree. The tree's all too happy to give him the attention and the love, and the boy keeps coming back. So it's a real give and take, at least in the beginning, right? The tree is enjoying the companionship of the boy. Oh, swing from my branches. Oh, let me nourish you with this food. Oh, you know, rest under my shade. These are things I can do for you, but you're spending time with me. And I think there's an illustration of the boy hugging the tree. Right. And doesn't he like carve in like. He does. He carves like boy in boy plus initials. tree or something. Yes. Um, he swings from her branches. He climbs her trunk, you know, and the tree is just so delighted in this. This exchange, yeah. right? It it seems fair and equitable to me. Right. Like they, they have a relationship. They have a relationship, um, yes. And there's give and take. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's nice. Until it's the lovely. boy started to grow older. If that's not a metaphor for parenting, I don't know what is. Right. But I mean, and it's there. true, right? Like it is true <laughs> that young children are like, think their parents are the most amazing humans on the planet. And then, you know, one day they turn like 12 or 13. Um, (laughs) I'm looking at the carving into the tree and the boy is standing back so proud at his little carving, like near the stump of the tree, because the little boy is so small, right? And the tree is so big. And it's, there's a heart and it says me plus T, like me plus tree. (laughs) 
the thing ever. But then the book says, you know, time passes and the boy gets older. And we then see a carving above the low heart of me plus tree. Me plus YL is now carved in. Mm-hmm. And we see four little feet you know, laying down under the tree's shade. So mm-hmm. the boy has found someone. Right. Which is appropriate, right? It's appropriate. I found this article that was written in 2014 um, for The New Yorker, and it was called The Giving Tree at 50, Sadder Than I Remembered. And this is by Ruth Margolet. She said, instead of experiencing a pleasant rush of nostalgia, I was dismayed. A strange thing happens when we encounter a book we used to love and suddenly find it charmless. The feeling is one of puzzled disassociation. Was it really me who once cherished this book? The dismay I felt on rereading the book soon gave way to something else. Finding that a childhood favorite wasn't at all what I remembered carried with it a particular thrill, a kind of scientific proof that I had grown up and changed. And if I've changed... Perhaps the giving tree has two. What are your thoughts on this? I'm a little unsure of what that ending statement is. The book, at least in our culture now, isn't what it once was. The book has changed. But you're saying, no, culturally, we have changed. Right. That Like, we've changed and our culture has changed and the book has stayed the same, which is why now... It lands differently. Uh, uh-huh. I, I would love for that person to explain to me what they mean about uh-huh. that, like, perhaps the giving tree has two. Has two. I did like the part where Ruth Margolet says, finding that a childhood favorite wasn't at all what I remembered carried with it a particular thrill, a kind of scientific proof that I had grown up and changed. I kind of love that. Yeah. I mean, and it's true, right? Like, you can realize, oh, my perspective on this has shifted. We've discovered that on a lot of things that we've gone right. back to I think revisit this whole podcast on the podcast. Is, yeah, a lesson in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So as the boy grows up, it says that the tree was alone a lot of the time. So he's out trying to find himself. He comes back to the tree, and the tree's like, "Here, do you want some apples? Do you want to swing on my branches? Do you want to rest in my shade? Like, what can I offer you? And the boy's just largely unimpressed by what the tree can get. Like, okay, I guess I'll take that thing. Yeah. Uh, so many problems. Like one, he goes to the tree every time he has a problem. Yes. He wants the tree to fix his problem. Um, and the tree does. I don't know. Like, th- there's. I have so many problems with it now that I'm a grown-up. Okay, so there's many different interpretations of this book, right? It can be it can be thought of a multitude of ways. On Wikipedia, this is some hard-hitting journalism here. So, some deep research. She went to the ends of the internet for this, friends. Did. I, I went to the first thing that popped up when I typed in the Giving Tree wiki, yeah. <laughs> so we could have like sort of a religious interpretation where the tree is, quote, the Christian ideal of unconditional love. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's an environmental interpretation where the tree is Mother Nature and the boy is humanity who just keeps taking and taking and taking and taking. Now, that one I can get behind because, Mm -hmm. yes, whether that was the intention or not, like that for sure is there. Right. 
I found a piece uh, written by Charles Rusin titled Why I Can't Stand the Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein, a picture of destructive and selfish relationships. He said, quote, the tree might have lasted for generations had her needs been tended to. She might have provided fruit and shelter for the boy's children and grandchildren for years to come. But of course, that could never happen because he reduced this poor tree to a stump. So... Right. Which which came first, the giving tree or the way that we treat the environment? Because, I mean, it sort of reflects that there wasn't a huge concern. It was this idea of like, I'm just going to take, I'm going to take, I'm going to take. And then like, when there's nothing left, like, well, I'm going to die soon. So I guess I'll just have a seat here on the stump that's left. Right. It doesn't matter. Right. But what about for the generations to come? So yeah, it really does embody that sort of very me-centric thinking. I'm trying to remember. Hold on. I'm going back into the book. The boy has children, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. He tells the tree that he wants to have a family. And so he needs a house because he wants to have a family. So maybe we just assume that he has a family. What a selfish little bastard. Like, so he has children who will one day have children of their own. and, And this tree could have provided not only just for his family, For many, many families. Mm -hmm. Well, and also, yeah, the idea that like, yes, let me take all your branches to build my house. Like when we could have used shade and I could have gone to the lumber store. Um, (laughs) Have you seen the price of lumber these days? This was 1964. (laughs) Okay, true. True story. Probably get a two by four for like two Look at me. I'm like justifying his selfish (laughs) intentions. I'm like, you know, lumber's really expensive. (laughs) Yeah. So, and then, of course, this leads us to the mother-child or parenting interpretation, which, I mean, hey, this book is given at baby showers. This is probably the most given book, the giving tree, the most giving book. I know, and I'll never be able to give it to anyone, but it is lovely. I mean, it's so cute. And, like, I've for sure seen lots of pictures in nurseries where it's, like, propped up on a shelf. Right. But, like, what are we really publicizing here? So... In that article, we need to talk about The Giving Tree by Adam Grant and Allison Sweet Grant. They said, here's the thing. It's not really about generosity. It's a book about self-sacrifice. And those are two very different things. To some readers, the tree's act of sacrifice seems noble, like the unconditional love a parent gives to a child. But if you assume the story is about generosity, it's easy to learn the wrong lessons that it's okay for a child to take selfishly, and that adults should give until it hurts and keep giving until they literally have nothing left to offer. It is a recipe for trouble. I am going to probably slightly incorrectly quote Brene Brown, but I think this is close. And she says that there is no generosity without boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is one of the truest statements that I've ever heard. And that is where things fall apart for me in this book is that there's no boundaries. Like the tree will give whatever they need to and the boy will take it. Okay. But whose fault is that? Oh, it's codependent. It's both of them contributing to this. When the boy slash teen slash middle-aged adult slash old man comes, the tree is so happy. She's all too happy to give it. So if there's no generosity without boundaries, I interpret that to mean you're not truly being generous unless you're giving in a way that feels good to you and that 
would feel good to you if you had boundaries. But if you don't have boundaries, that implies to me that the giving feels bad. Am I wrong? Well, so the way I take it to mean is that she's giving because she wants the boy to be happy, right? Like she's trying to. Or is she wanting the boy to come back more often to Right. Or that, I think that's also part of it. Like the boy comes to see her and she wants that maybe he's going to come back again. So if I can give him, you know, something, then maybe he'll come back next time he needs something. But that's not really boundaried giving, right? You're giving because you're wanting something in exchange for it. And instead of just the joy of giving. Right. And, and like, you're not getting his company at other times, right? Like, maybe there would be a scenario. I mean, for sure, I feel like it's appropriate for him to, you know, pick the apples, because those are going to grow back every year. But like, he doesn't come at the other times. She's lonely at the other times. Mm -hmm. And so it's really not generosity. It's codependent. (laughs) It's like, I'm going to give you this so you'll come and see me. Right. And he's kind of doing the same thing, right? I'm going to come and see you so I can get what I want. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, it's very sad. I mean, they these writers suggest, quote, this book should be used as a healthy starting point for conversations about healthy behavior and healthy relationships, which is really saying healthy boundaries. Right. That yeah, because she never asks him to respect a boundary, right? She never provides a boundary. And one might suspect that she doesn't provide the boundary because she's afraid he'll go away. As someone who has sometimes struggled with boundaries in my own life. I mean, I think um, we all do, for sure. Right. And, like, one of the things that you learn when you start to provide boundaries that you have not before is that people who are used to you not having boundaries do not like it. (laughs) And sometimes go away from your life because of it. Um, Which brings me to yet another quote. And this one is from... Glennon Doyle, I believe, that is your boundaries are your responsibility. People's reactions to your boundaries are not your responsibility. (laughs) Um, And I think that that's very wise. It seemed to the tree that it was worth it to be reduced and reduced and reduced for the little amount of attention or companionship. Yeah. And like, it's sad. It is. and And then there's also the issue of The boy never even has a moment of saying, oh, but if I take your branches, I won't be able to play in your shade. You know, like there's never saying like, I'm too old for that. Like, I don't want to do that. That doesn't serve me anymore. I can't. I can't. I don't want to. These are all of my excuses as to why I can't. But I can mill the lumber from your branches and build myself a house. (laughs) I can't play under your, your branches. I can't climb them, but I can mill them and build a house out of them. Um, I don't know how he was able to build a house from those branches, even though that tree's big. I right? Don't know. I yeah, don't know. I have no, questions, but I do. I I do have some logistical questions, yes. <laughs> especially the boat. I was like, first of all, you look very old. Right? Like, how are you going to carry? Like, I think there's an illustration of him carrying the trunk away. Hold right, like, I'm just going to like put this over my shoulder and <laughs> off I go. Even though I'm tired, I'm tired. That is so funny. He cut that shit down and he carried it and he is old. Right. But it does no. say like once he 
cut down her trunk and made that boat and sailed far, far away. It says, and the tree was happy, ellipses, Mm -hmm. but not really. Yeah, because now she's just a stump and alone. And alone. And when he comes back after a long time, he's super old and ugly. The sketch is scary. The tree actually says, I'm sorry, boy. She is apologizing for having nothing left. And he took all of it. And she's apologizing. And wait, did he say thank you ever? No, I don't believe so. Um, He said, like she said, "I there's nothing left of me. I'm just an old stump. I'm super sorry about that, even though you took it all. And he's like, I don't need very much because I'm old. I just want to rest. And she's like, that I can offer you. And that was it. And does it say, at the end, remind me, when he sits on her stump, Mm -hmm. does it say she's happy? Yeah. The tree was happy, Kate. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of dysfunction there. (laughs) The tree was happy. Was there at least a question mark after happy? (laughs) No. He sits down and the tree was happy, period, the end. And in the Charles Rosen piece, it says, I can disagree with how we have lifted up the story as an unconscious model of how to be a true partner. And so perhaps the real flaw in the end is with us. We failed to see the unpleasant side of the relationships played out in the giving tree and idolized it as a template for our children. Perhaps the joke is on us. Like we missed the point. We looked at this and said, what a beautiful story of generosity between a mother or parent slash child. We were the ones who decided that. It was never Shel Silverstein. Yeah, for sure. We like put our cultural imprint on it mm-hmm. and then used it to perpetuate a really unrealistic and unhealthy concept of a parent-child relationship. That is celebrated. That is expected. relationship. Yes. Right. Like it needs to be deconstructed. So we're here deconstructing it. <laughs> I mean, You're in welcome. the end, like like I said, this was never Silverstein's intention. He told the New York Times in 1975, it's just a relationship between two people. One gives and the other takes. The end. Said the man who wrote it. I'm just Said saying. the man who wrote it. <laughs> and Charles Rosen said, if the giving tree was satire, because it's possible you know, Shel Silverstein had had this sort of dark, twisted sense of humor, right? This very well could have been satire. There's all these different interpretations of this. Maybe satire was one of them. He said, if it was satire, it played far too closely to the ambivalence with which Shel Silverstein lived his own relationships. He wasn't um, a great partner, Okay. He had a child that he wasn't really that invested in. We'll go into that in in a little bit. He was deeply ambivalent. I think he was so creative that like relationships just weren't part of his making. I mean, he kind of says that in that one quote you had, right? That he was like, but I'd already like gotten into my work. So yeah, whatever it was, whatever he wrote it, whatever his intention or his thoughts about it were, Like, we as a culture took it and ran and decided what it meant and decided it was a good story and decided that it was, like, sweet and sentimental. But then to go back and look at it, really, it's teaching unhealthy relationship patterns, But we still subscribe to that model, right? Like, I was a writer in the parenting space for many, many years. And 
the expectations on mothers in particular, you know, it's like we expect this perfect model of selfless giving forever and ever and ever to our own detriment, right? We're ignoring our own health. We're ignoring our own boundaries, all for the sake of these children who will one day grow up to, you hope, visit once a year for Christmas, like maybe. Yeah. So it's very interesting being child-free because I cannot tell you how many, it's mostly mothers because I I just don't have that many like close dad friends who will tell me their doubts about motherhood, having feelings about feeling selfish or, you know, and they'll tell me because they don't worry about like, oh, but this person is this model mother and I couldn't possibly admit to her that I have these negative feelings, but they, so they'll tell me and it feels safer to tell me than to tell another mother. But then what's sad is you have all of these mothers out there that are struggling, but not getting the camaraderie of somebody else going through that same experience and being able to say like, oh, me too. Like this is hard because we hold up this just wild standard that we want mothers to achieve, particularly like you're supposed to work, but like also maybe don't work, but like, but don't work too much, but be right, successful. But make sure kids have enough money to mm-hmm. do all the things they want to do. And like, it's, it's an impossible task. And still we demand it as a culture. And I, I can't even imagine. So what I'm sensing now is that culture is the little boy and mothers are the tree. Yeah. I mean, that's a way to look at it. We don't support our mothers. Right. But we expect everything from them. And when everything is cut down and they're reduced to stumps. Not only do we expect everything from them, we expect them to be happy about giving it. Exactly right. Or I'm going off on a tangent here, but this is my big, big problem about Mother's Day. Yes. it's I, I feel this every year. We have a conversation about it every year. I've written about this. As a culture and society, we pretend moms are the most important people. Everyone says it. Everyone says it. And I really think they believe it. Like, I think they believe it. They believe it for one day a year. And it feels so disingenuous on Mother's Day to be like, we honor our mothers. Do you, though? You don't with maternal leave. You don't. Right. You don't in our society. You do not value mothers. You don't with our maternal health outcomes. Yeah. <laughs> maternal mortality, maternal right. mental health. You don't value it. Don't say that you value it. You, much like the boy, value what you get from mothers. <laughs> and you know what? It's a lot. And it's because we give it. But are yeah. we happy? No. And when we're not happy, we are shamed. Oh, for sure. I have had women, sometimes women, I don't even know that well, share their true feelings about being a mom with me. And like, they're so relieved to have finally shared it. But also you can see how they feel like it's like this dirty little secret that they shouldn't share. And that's not true. Like no one's perfect. And no one expects the dads to be perfect. Like the dad spends a night with the kid and they're like, oh, he's so great for watching his kid. Like he's babysitting. That's my favorite. just parenting. (laughs) That's the job. And here's the thing. You know, we talk about the dirty little secret. Motherhood is amazing for so many reasons. 
I would never take back that choice as hard of a job as it is. This is the hardest job I have ever done. It's the job that I care the most about in this world. I think my children are amazing, but you know what? It is just that hard and it never stops being hard. It gets hard in different ways as your kids get older, but there are days where I'm like tapped out. There are days where it's just, it's more energy than I can seem to muster. And I wish that there was more honesty and transparency about that feeling because none of us are saying we don't want this job. That's not the consensus. The consensus is it's hard. The world needs to recognize that it's hard and think we're doing a great job in spite of the fact that we're tired. Right. It can be a yes and It's a yes and. Where's the support to maybe make it feel a little less alone or a little less challenging? It's not the world's responsibility to care for my children. I'm not expecting that. But it's like if I am to do the best job that I'm capable of doing, a village would be amazing. I do think it's the world's responsibility to help with your children. And I say that as someone who doesn't have children. I'm happy to pay property taxes to help support other people's children going to school, right? Because that's just part of being a good member of society. Well, you don't have a choice. So you got to pay the taxes. Right. But I could complain about it, right? Like (laughs) I could be like, oh, I don't want to pay those taxes because I don't have kids going to school and I could be cranky about it. But like, I'm not, I feel like, you know, yeah, I want young people to like learn and be part of society and, and have resources. And also on a much more like micro level, I have many, many times helped a mom in one way or another, right? Whether it's like, I will never forget one of my family members. I went to visit them and they had a new baby. They were breastfeeding and they said, I just want to go to Target. Would you mind watching the baby while I go to Target? Yeah. And I was like, of course, go ahead. And I knew where Target was from their house and I'm watching the baby and I was like, wow, they've been gone a long time. And then the baby's starting to get fussy, right? This is an exclusively breastfed baby. So there's like, uh, yeah. um, and I'm like, oh, oh, goodness. Like, we're, and then I thought, oh, I bet that this is the first time she has gotten to go out by herself and just be by herself and like wander around Target. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, I'll just deal with the crying baby and figure it out. You know? And she returned very shortly after. It's so. huge. I remember my uh, mother-in-law came to visit when my first son was a newborn and he had a lot of health issues when he was an infant. It was a very dramatic sort of situation in the beginning with him. And I was so tired that like, I swear I was starting to see things. Like I was just, I was Mm -hmm. delusional. And she came over to visit with the baby and she insisted that I take a nap. And like, I was struggling so hard to even fall asleep as exhausted as I was because it felt irresponsible. No, I'm this baby's mom. This baby, you know, is medically compromised. I cannot fall asleep. But all the while I'm being reduced to a stump here, right? My husband's working. I'm home. I'm about to go back to work. It, it's like a hot disaster. I fell asleep. I slept so hard for hours and she just cared for the baby. And when I woke up, I felt like a different person. And all that person did was just sit with my baby so I could take a Like I needed that so bad. And I still think about it. My son is 20. It was the most important thing she ever gave me. I needed it that badly. I, and this is why. A village is so absolutely critical. It's not meant to be done in a vacuum. This tree 
does not have friends no, in the forest. Why is this have... tree alone? If the tree had companionship, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, I'm I'm looking at the illustrations. She says the forest is my home. I, I don't look like that to me. And wh- if she had social relationships with her fellow trees and maybe the woodland creatures that lived in her branches, then maybe she would not need so much from this little boy. She needed a village. She needed a forest. Yeah. And like have the idea that like this one person is everything that her resources supported a vast network of things. Right. Like not just this boy. Animals. Um, Yes. And so, yeah, I mean, it's I think and I so it is whether he intended it or not, it is sort of a story of how isolated we are and particularly in families and particularly new mothers. When Mm -hmm. I, I always tell people, make a list, make a list of things that need to be done around your house, write down how your washer and dryer works, um, you know, write down some recipe cards with your favorite recipes on them. So that when people come over to see the baby and say, Oh, can I help with anything instead of just politely being like, No, no, it's fine. You're a guest be like, Yes, here's a list. Please pick two things. Right. (laughs) When you go visit that new mother, instead of bringing a copy of the giving tree, Bring a hot dish. (laughs) Yeah. Bring your time and energy because that is what a new mother needs. So yeah, support, a little support. Support. You and I had texted briefly about the Topher Payne alternate ending to the book, to The Giving Tree. Topher Payne has a website called Topher Fixed It. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Topher's doing the Lord's work because he has taken several of our favorite children's classics and, quote, fixed the endings. Um, Of course, The Giving Tree was on that list. You saw that also. So he reworked The Giving Tree into a piece titled The Tree Who Set Healthy Boundaries. And we'll link this in the show notes because it's definitely worth reading. I I don't know if he's gotten a cease and desist from the I know source. I was wondering about that. <laughs> I was a little bit scared. I wonder if it can be considered parody and so uh, it's protected. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm, because he has the illustrations and he has reworked the illustrations and I believe, right? And he has reworked the text certainly to tell mm-hmm. a different story with totally different messaging. So in his version of this book, the tree demonstrates to the boy how healthy, mutually beneficial relationships work, Kate. And in the end, the tree and the boy partner in an apple pie business. How cute is that? And the tree continues to support the boy's children and children's children and children's children's children. This is a happier ending. And the tree was happy. The tree was ecstatic because the tree got to see all the descendants of the boy who she loved. Because the tree is going to be around for a long time. Yep. So, yep. so yeah. that that's how Topher fixed it. We'll link it, read it, enjoy it. And, you know, it's like the other writers said, Adam Grant and Allison Sweet Grant, that this book, if nothing else, if you've gotten it at your baby shower and you're reading it because it's an easy read to your kid at night when you're really, really tired and just want to go to bed, it is a great starting point for conversations. Right. Oh, it sparks a great conversation Uh that you can have, right? To be like, what else might the tree have said? Or like, what could the boy have done differently? Right. So yeah, it's, it's a good learning 
tool for sure. And I mean, as are like a a lot of the things that we go back and cover provide uh, opportunities to have some really interesting discussions. That would not have necessarily come up organically, right? Right. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I'm not going to ask my 15 year old when he comes in here and needs a ride somewhere. Like um, I'm establishing a boundary that doesn't feel like it's mutually beneficial. (laughs) I mean, I think you could, I think you could be like, Hey, like I've been noticing that you've been asking. Actually, I have had that conversation. (laughs) I have. It's like, you know, that relationships involve, I mean, healthy relationships involve give and take. Right. Right. They just do. So we can both feel good about what we ask for and need and provide to each other because it's healthy. Right. Because I know some people who don't have great boundaries and it's hard for me to know, like, am I overstepping their boundaries because I'm asking for this thing? Because I like to take responsibility for everyone. Uh, (laughs) I'm like, you know, like, am I being unkind by like asking for this thing versus when when I ask for something from somebody who I know has really clear boundaries, I feel so safe in asking for what I need because I know that if they can give it to me, they absolutely will. Joyously, like they're happy to give it to you, not giving it to you with bitterness or resentment, right? You know that if you ask and they give it, that it's something that they want to do in support of you. Exactly, which is such a glorious feeling to be like, oh, I asked for this really big thing and this person said, absolutely no problem. And I don't have to have this weird questioning of like, uh, like, did they really want to do that? Did I Mm -hmm. somehow like manipulate them into doing it? Are they mad at me now, even though they're doing it? Right. And so like boundaries aren't just for you as the person setting the boundaries. They're also really beneficial to people who respect boundaries and understand boundaries. Mm -hmm. And like, so I, I really appreciate people in a weird way, even though it sucks when you like need something and people tell you no. When that same person tells you yes, you're like, oh, they would have absolutely told me if the answer was no. And so this is like, uh, like enthusiastic. Yes. So yeah, I totally agree. And of course, like we said, the giving tree was super successful. Everybody gave it to everybody when everybody had babies. And because it was so successful, Silverstein's publisher encouraged him to write children's poetry. But Silverstein said, like, I never planned to write or draw for kids. And how interesting, though, because, like, he really did create treasured pieces of literature for children. He did. You know, it's funny because you would think with all of Silverstein's success, that could change a person. It did not change him. He was always his own sort of modest guy. He just loved to live in the creative. And he was not actually surprised by his success. He said, what I do is good. I wouldn't let it out if I didn't think it was. So that was it. No surprise here. So in terms of Silverstein, the man and his relationships, like we were talking about his just general ambivalence to things, he did end up in a relationship with Susan Taylor Hastings. She was a woman he met at the mansion. They met and had a daughter named Shoshana Jordan Hastings in 1970, but Susan died five years later, like one day before Shoshana's fifth birthday. And she, that little girl without a mother, did not end up living with Shel Silverstein. She did not live with her father. She went to go live with her aunt and uncle before dying at age 11 of a cerebral aneurysm. Wow. He did dedicate a light in the attic to her. 
that was his first children's book to appear on the New York Times bestsellers list. It was on there for 182 weeks. Wow. I mean, that's that's years. And, that's like over three years. Right. That yeah. was many years. That's a long time. <laughs> but like he didn't have a relationship with her. It's just very mm-hmm. sad. And um, he died at the age of 68 of a heart attack in his wow. home in 1999. Hmm. So well, I feel like that was a lot of sadness there at the end. It is. I mean, he was a man who did not believe in happy endings. And so it seems apropos in his own life that like, I think his greatest joy was derived from his work. And that was what he dedicated himself to at the maybe personal expense of his relationships. I mean, I, I think his work was his true passion. Who knows what happens to people in their lives that causes them to behave the way that they do, but wow. Yeah. So I saw an estimate that over 10 million copies have been sold. I feel like it would be way more than that. I was going to say that. That feels low. It's kind of low to me, you know, based on the popularity of this. It's just like such a And like a how cultural... long it's been around? Yeah. Like, I. so I don't really know about that. I, I couldn't find another number that... I know. I'm right. so bad with like large numbers. Like Me I'm too. like, would a hundred million seem appropriate? <laughs> or is that like a whole lot? <laughs> Whenever we cover album sales, that's always my thinking. Like it'll be like, it went triple platinum at this number. I'm like, it seems kind of low. Right. Like, like I that... don't know. Yeah. In March, 2022. So not that long ago. The U.S. Postal Service commemorated the giving tree with the Shel Silverstein stamp. Super cute. It's a little boy with his hands outstretched waiting for the apple that was on the cover. Of course, perhaps as apropos as all things, uh, the tree is nowhere to be seen. (laughs) Screw the tree. The tree didn't matter anyway. It's all about the boy and the apple. It's all about the boy. (laughs) It should actually just be called a story about a boy who's kind of selfish. <laughs> the selfish boy. There's the giving tree and the selfish boy. I, I think right. this should be retitled the selfish boy. Yes. Thank you all for joining us. If you're enjoying the pod, we invite you to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you just can't get enough, we invite you to check out our Patreon. For just $5 or more a month, you'll gain access to bonus episodes. And more importantly, your money goes to supporting the pod. You can find us on the socials and the web at the untitled And we hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Bye.